0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. In this session, The Borderland, which was recorded at the 2019 Festival, Chloe Hooper, Bram Presser and Jock Sarong explore the creative space between fact and fiction. Your host is Geordie Williamson.
1: You probably are aware of the books they've written and you're aware of them, but let me briefly introduce them. Bram Presser, to my extreme left, is a lawyer. I'm not sure what his specialty is.
2: Criminal, I suppose. (laughs) Bumbling, probably more accurate.
1: (laughs) It was a profound disappointment to Bram's grandparents when he became involved in Melbourne's um, punk scene. (laughs) But he has redeemed himself with a (laughs) book... with a book called The Book of Dirt, which has to be one of the most extraordinary debuts in um, Australian writing in recent years. It is an account, partly fictionalised, partly uh, documentary non-fiction, uh, of the experience of his grandparents during, before, during and after World War II. We'll leave that one wide open to discuss a little later on. Beside him is Chloe Hooper and I'm not sure why she's here because she told me in the green room that she got a D in her English final English exam. (laughs) She too redeemed herself later on by writing a book called The Tall Man which will endure, I think, as a great classic of Australian non-fiction and it will be read many years and many decades from now as a forensic examination which never, ever recuses itself from empathetic identification with all of the parties involved in a tremendously fraught and tragic and difficult We're event. not
0: here to talk about that book. We're not.
1: <laughs> She's also a novelist. <laughs> ...of great imaginative flair and gothic sensibility. And she's written another book, which we'll be discussing today... (laughs) ..called The Arsonist. And it's just as good, if not better, than her first non-fiction foray. Immediately to my left is a man named Jock Sorong, who... Surprise, surprise, Is also a lawyer involved with crime, asylum seekers, and I've forgotten the third. Native title. Native title. Uh, but in recent years, he has also written four novels in a very brief period of time of such ferocious uh, intelligence and sharp-edged sensibility that they have been... Um, Oh, no, what can I say? I don't think anyone has written as well as Jock in such a short period of time, in my time as a publisher, critic, editor, and general layabout who lies on the sofa and reads books. (laughs) So it's enormous treat to have you all here. And I want to start because this is a session about the difference between fiction and non-fiction the difference between reportage and involving yourself with the historical record, the difference between knowing what your grandparents did or was done to them during a time of conflict, and making stuff up. So I want to start with you, Bram, because I feel like the The historical weight lies heaviest on your shoulders of the three books today. Bram's book, The Book of Dirt, moves between a Zeboldian documentary realism with documents photographed and placed in the text, with photographs of particular places, with dates and times and quoted speech, and then it is interleaved with a novel a novel which is shadowed by the great world historical tragedy of the 20th century, the Holocaust. Bram, you stepped onto incredibly unstable ground with this book. I think that you come through triumphantly. But I could also see in the composition that there was a great danger there. And the danger was, by making things up, ...that we enter into the realm of falsification for our own ends of other people's stories. Can you tell us a little bit about the decisions that you were having to make... ...as you started to write this book about how you were going to address the enormous gaps in the historical record... ...and the, the difference between what you knew of your grandparents and what you discovered about them subsequently?
2: Okay, so I should probably start by saying I didn't really set out to write a book. Uh, My grandparents were Holocaust survivors who never told their stories. Um, We sort of came up with this theory of what had happened to them during the war. Um, They died. We, We were happy to just leave that be. And then a couple of years afterwards, an article was published about my grandfather that said that he had been chosen by the Nazis to be the literary curator of uh, Hitler's Museum of the Extinct Race. And I'd never heard of uh, heard heard this story, and it really kind of took me by surprise. So, what I actually really set out to do was just to find out what version of his story was true. And so I I wanted to, you know, I I started just by I, I happened to be in Israel. I was in a punk band at the time. We were touring. Um, in Israel, the other boys went home, and I, I, I said, oh, "I'm just going to stay for a couple of weeks." I went to the to Yad Vashem, I went to a couple of other Holocaust memorial places, um, and basically was told that you know the story, as reported in the article, was was, was rubbish. Um, uh, but I was still had I, I, I there was something about it that it didn't make sense to me that it was completely um, like made up. But I wasn't at a point yet where I had access to any records. So I came back home. I'd been keeping notes on, on the journey. Um, I came back home and I just thought, well, if I'm not going to get to know them that way, you know, my great love is fiction. I've, I, you know, I'm a reader before anything else. So maybe I can try and explore them as, as characters. And I knew bits of their stories. I knew my grandfather was a, uh, the son of a rabbi in a small village um, in what's now the Ukraine. And he fled to Prague, uh, ran away from his family to seek... Um, secular education and uh, so I thought, you know, let me just write what that would be like and I actually found quite quickly that I was getting to know them as, uh, like there was a different, there was a different, I I, I say this a lot, there's like a different truth in fiction um, where, uh, you know, you don't get the dates and you don't get the numbers and all that sort of, but you actually get to know them as people. So I was exploring that based on bits that I knew and then like a whole series of strange coincidences occurred where records just started falling on my lap and so I was documenting both at the same time, and they were sort of bouncing off each other. And where it really played out was where I had information about my grandparents, um, where... A classic example, there's a scene where my great-grandmother, who was a convert, um, went to visit my grandmother um, in concentration camp. Uh, so my great-grandmother wasn't taken, because they, they didn't consider her Jewish. So she went, to, she went to visit them, and my editor said to me, this couldn't have happened. Like, people did not visit concentration camps. And I said, well, according to my mum's cousin in Prague, that is what, her, what his grandmother, my great-grandmother, told her. So she said, you can't put this in the book unless you find evidence. And though I didn't find evidence of that, their particular visit, I actually did find evidence of people visiting Therese and which is where they were in, in, in the, the Czech concentration camp. And so, like... I, I, what I realised was there was this, a huge responsibility when writing about the, the historical elements of, of of the story to make sure you were on sound, recorded ground. Like, there's plenty of space for imagination, there's plenty of space for to- storytelling, but don't get the essence of what the Holocaust was wrong. right? And that was something that really weighed on me very heavily and that I... Uh, it actually pretty much caused me to have a breakdown at one point. Um, but then when I kind of gathered and had all, all these pieces and I kind of worked out that the story is just this strange amalgamation of my search, the bits of story that I found, plus this um, reimagination of their story from the scraps that I had found, um, that that actually worked in what was kind of a... Uh, I don't know, the, like, you know, it, it had an integrity that, that I was able to kind of stand by and not feel that I was kind of as you said like you know making stuff up and being in that kind of dangerous world of possible revisionism. Mm.
1: Yeah, there is an extraordinary moment where you the reader understands that letters were actually getting out of yeah. concentration camps. I thought this is inexplicable. And then there is a photograph <laughs> Of yeah i have the letters, letters and direct quotation yeah. you know, that this is the point where fiction actually has to tamp down the sheer weirdness of yes. of, of of human possibility Absolutely. you know in mm. in, in, in the, the real world in inverted commas mm. chloe you have written the strict non fiction between these two novelists although i you know you have a novelist sensibility and nowhere where more so than when you're actually dealing with this non fiction material but you have a very difficult situation in your book. And how many of you have read The Arsonist? Can I have a show of hands? Right, so you'll know that this deals with the aftermath of the Black Saturday fires and the man who was uh, regarded as the firebug, the pyromaniac who had actually set them. But he is, in many respects, inaccessible. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to understand that you might have to bring your novelist sensibility to bear because of the primary uh, you know your your primary protagonist was in many respects um a a, a, a just a dark space on your imaginary map
0: well um Brendan Sokolok was arrested on the Thursday after Black Saturday, uh, you know, ten and a bit years ago. And at that time, he was a 39-year-old man who was unemployed and he was known in his community for um, collecting scrap metal in the surrounding hills. And what he uh, couldn't sell on, he would often take home and burn. Uh, he'd be burning through electricity uh, power cords to salvage the copper wiring and often listening to you know, Bob the Builder, his neighbours later said, um, in the background. Um, you know, I, I actually feel, though, I did have, have you know, a bit to work on because the um, his... Police interviews were, were all recorded, and um, some of them, which are quite uncanny to watch, show him uh, taking detectives back to the edge of um, a, a blackened area that's 34,000 hectares and, and claiming that this is where he threw a cigarette out the window of his car on Black Saturday. Um, but, you know, this, there's, there's, you know, a good couple of hours of footage of him talking and, and uh, showing them around. Um, there were also, I mean, a, a lot of information from um, witnesses about him uh, and um, what was difficult, you know, in, in writing this story and, sorry, also written some, some sort of semi, well, not even really literate uh, writings by him that also gave a sense, but his, his lawyers felt that they were dealing with somebody who was, was very impaired and he went on to be diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum and having an intellectual disability. The police believed that they were dealing with uh, somebody who was more uh, mad than bad in, in, in their terms, who was a cunning serial fire setter, and they both had such different ideas of him. I also spoke to his family. So, I mean, I had uh, a ways, I suppose, of trying to, um, to build a portrait of him, which I, I hope stands up.
1: Well, you, you write um, several different books, as far as I can see, and they restart at certain points. And it's thrilling to uh, encounter this process. So, for instance, the first section of the book deals with the police and their perspective, their bead on this man. But the second section of the book begins with his legal representatives. And their perspective is entirely different. And, uh, I mean, it seems to be remarkable that you managed to kind of honour these different perspectives without necessarily bringing your own thumb on the scales to kind of weigh, uh, you know, ideas of innocence and guilt. But it must have been hard for you to actually accept these radically differing positions on the same man.
0: Yes, I mean, I would... would, um... Uh, go from one sort of side of the aisle to the other and uh, have my head turned. But, you know, actually, you know, we we want a uh, sort of form-fit idea of people. And what I guess I realised is actually it is possible to be guileless and full of guile, to be um, cunning and and... And childish and uh, I think actually you know this this you know they were both describing the same person and and they were both you know both the police and the lawyers <coughs> I had enormous uh, respect for and they had a lot of compassion and, and dedication and forensic skill I, I I believed both of them in the end
1: Jock you had the toughest job, I think, in terms of imaginative recuperation, because the story you tell is so far distant in time. We're talking about uh, the late seventeen, uh, sorry, the late eighteen hundreds, and we're talking about an event which hangs by the slenderest of threads in terms of uh, the actual historical record. I get the impression that there really is no historical record except for a series of newspaper articles written quite a period of time afterwards recollecting the original events. Mm. And yet, at the same time, you're talking about the early years of the Australian colony, uh, whereas in the mid-'60s, Tom Keneally could sit down to write Bring Larks and Heroes without a single work of transportation-era history in print and having to work from primary materials. And we've had an explosion in uh, historiography surrounding the um, early years of the colony. We've had wonderful novels too. And I note that you thank Kate Grenville in your acknowledgements. So on one hand, you've got this density of... A historical record on the other hand this slender thread and I want to ask you what drew you how did you reconcile the difficulties that pertained and was it actually easier to write the novel without having that kind of thickness and density of historiography for your particular subject you should probably tell them what it's about at the same time oh, I should <laughs>
3: um, <laughs> I think the first thing to say about that is that um, I'm not a historian by any means at all Um, I'm I'm an imaginer of things, I'm a storyteller and it just happens that the story that grabbed me here is a historical one. Um, The the story of the Sydney Cove in very short compass, it's really quite involved but the the short version of of it is this, that in 1797 you've you've got a colony in New South Wales that's nine years old, um, trade to the colonies and by that I mean all of the colonies was controlled by the East India Company in order to get around their monopoly people worked out that you could base trading houses in Southeast Asia um, and therefore access the colonies. So these very enterprising Scots (laughs) called the Campbells and the Clarks set up a house in Calcutta and uh, they started to... They they built a distillery and they started to ship booze to the colonies. And um, they did it once to Sydney in 1792 and it worked like a charm. And they decided to chance their arm again. And these are speculative cargoes, which means that um, nobody ordered this stuff. It's like a a floating luxury supermarket that they just roll into the harbour and try and flog. I
1: think if you turn up with that amount of rum in Mm. Sydney in those years, you've got a good chance of being able to flog it.
3: Yeah, so Sydney (laughs) um, at this stage has just come through a famine. And um, they're back on their feet to an extent. And um, this this boat, which was called the Begum Shore, and it was a river trader. It was a really crappy boat. And um, they they sort of reinforced it a little bit and they put vanity plates on the back. They called it the Sydney Cove as a little marketing nod to the colony. And off they went. And And almost the minute they left the river, they started sinking. And um, they got unseasonally bad <laughs> it seemed weather. seemed
0: like such a good idea. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> this is apparently the definition of noir. Things start out badly, then they really turn to shit. And... Um, so they, by the time they come around the bottom of Tasmania, and there is no in, in European understanding, there is no Bass Strait. So everybody used to go under Tassie, and uh, as they came up the east side of Tassie, they're almost underwater now, and it's up to the horse's neck in the in the hold, and the captain makes this drastic decision to turn west to try and beach it because it's carrying thirty-one thousand litres of rum, and. For, you know, beyond the obvious reality that that weighs 31 tonnes, rum is currency in Sydney. So you can literally buy and sell a human life with this stuff. And um, it's a fortune. I I tried to do the calculation at one point, but it's tens of millions of dollars on this boat. And um, so they sailed it into what turns out to be Bass Strait and they successfully beach it and everybody survives other than um, a Scotsman who fell out of the rigging earlier on and five Lascars and I'll come back to that idea in a second, five Lascars who died of exhaustion on the pumps, which is one of the early things that really drew me to, to this story was how barbaric is that as an idea? Um, so there they were, and 49 of them at this stage, and uh, they launched a longboat. So the, the, the ship, which is 100 feet long, has a longboat, which is about 18 feet long, and it has this tiny little dinghy called a jolly boat. But they launched the longboat with 17 men in it, One of the early problems here is I'm dealing with 55 men. Um, It's a very blokey tale at this stage. Uh, So they launched the longboat with the idea that it will sail to Sydney and raise the alarm because there's a moment of realisation that um, Calcutta doesn't know we didn't get there, Sydney doesn't know we're coming, (laughs) and we've sailed off the map. So they had literally disappeared themselves. And um, unless this longboat went to Sydney, nobody was ever going to know where they wound up. Um, Off goes the longboat, and within two days, it also had been wrecked. And these 17 men start walking. Only three of them got to Sydney, um, which I guess is the guts of the tale. And one of them was William Clark, who was of the trading family um, and probably the person most personally responsible for the entire catastrophe. He kept a diary. The interesting thing was a couple of interesting things about the diary. One was that um, late in the walk, he was speared through both hands, so, as you can imagine, his diary keeping tailed off after that point. <laughs> it's hard to hold a pen. And um, when he got to Sydney, he very, once he had recuperated, he very, very rapidly took off and went back to Calcutta and took the diary with him, and it's never been found. But what emerged six, eight months later was he went to a journalist in Calcutta who wrote up the diary. Wow. and. You can look at this thing online as full text on Gutenberg and and it's really interesting to do, and it was one of the early it's the early and most fundamental source for me, is this paraphrased diary, because we don't know how literal the journalist was. Did the journalist fill in the gaps, make it more readable, excuse the various sins that have no doubt been committed here? Is it actually verbatim? There's no knowing. And um, I found that such an intriguing idea because there's just enough room. As a novelist, and again, I'm not a historian, there's just enough room to have a sort of skeletal structure of so-called truth and lots and lots of space to do the making up that I want to do. Um, The only other primary source in this whole story is that in 1977 they found the wreck. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about Flinders Island um, is that there's a lot of scuba diving goes on on the island. And um, all of it was founded by a woman, a woman named Marge Verue, who taught herself to scuba dive in the era of Jacques Cousteau, you know, with really primitive gear, and then taught all the men. So three of the blokes on the island found the wreck, and because they knew where they were in the island chain, they knew that there was a very real possibility this was the Sydney Cove. This is 1977. The first state legislation in Australia protecting shipwrecks had been passed 12 months earlier. And they went straight to the museum in Launceston. They said, we think we've found the Sydney Cove. The museum immediately reacted. There was an archaeological survey done. Um, things were recovered and preserved and accordingly... Things? What
0: happened to the rum? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, the rum... was it was, it was
1: pretty
2: aged by then. i, I, <laughs> I microphone I just want to know what happened to the... To, didn't they just check the vanity plates at the back? So. <laughs> <laughs> it was well out
3: of rego, this thing. Um, but they were able to learn so much about the voyage and the state of trading at the time from what they found in the wreck. So there a wreck and there's this dodgy looking paraphrased diary and in between all of these things I thought of them as I was writing as pillars and I made the decision early on that I was going to leave the pillars standing and not mess with them at all but that I was going to fill in between the pillars and that's what I tried to work with as an approach.
1: And I think it works brilliantly but we'll get to that later. I want to return to Bram at this point because again speaking of the difficulties of your particular book uh, I want to refer to the immense and remarkable literature that has emerged from the Holocaust. And it's not just Primo Levi, it is an entire canon of writers, filmmakers. And there's that amazing moment where your grandfather um, makes you sit down and, and watch all of Shoah. <laughs> has anyone oh, seen oh. Claudio Landsman's landmark documentary, Shoah? Yeah. yeah, so it's a long, it's a long documentary. Yeah.
2: He sat next to me, and I wasn't allowed to talk, and I just had to watch. And I was about, uh, you know, twelve-ish. I don't know, but um, that was a long sitting session yeah. for a kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but what I, I, what was remarkable uh, to me reading the book is, you managed to bring a kind of freshness of approach to uh, an area that has been covered so marvelously and powerfully by writers that precede you, but I wanted to ask about the sense of uh, possibility and responsibility that falls to a younger generation writer who's trying to approach this same topic which has been dealt with, yeah. with, with such incredible uh, insight and, 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 and moral fervour and clarity. And
2: voluminously so.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it must be... It must be debilitating. Well, I'll tell
2: you what—it's—it is in a way. But like, I think we're we're actually in a really interesting kind of historical juncture at the moment, where we're we're very close to losing the adult survivor um, uh, population. There are very few left. You know, there's still a generation of child survivors, but their memories are informed by childhood experience. Um, I. I thought actually a lot about this question about kind of what is the role of the new generation of particularly novelists, because that's what I sort of considered myself in telling these stories. I I think I I, I, I spent a lot of time wondering whether I had permission, I suppose, particularly to tell stories that my grandparents had actively chosen not to tell, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what happened I think had that article not been published and I not known that it wasn't true. And the thing was, my grandfather was actually quite a well-known um, person in the Melbourne Jewish community. He, he'd been a teacher at the biggest Jewish day school for 42 years. All of his former students used to come up to me going, oh, I read that article. Oh, your grand. oh, I didn't know that about him. And I, and I actually had this, I felt actually a responsibility the other way where I didn't want something that wasn't true to be the remaining... Uh, his remaining legacy, you know, narrative legacy, or what have you. But
1: there's some truth in this. There is. this outlandish well, this, story. Can you? Can so you so guide what I, us I wanted through?
2: to, I wanted to clarify it. So, so th- this idea that, that 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 Hitler had had plans to build a museum in uh, Prague for uh, that was would be which would have all of the uh, Judaica. Uh, you know, uh, whether it be you know Torah scrolls, um, artwork, you know everything, right, um, on display to show what a degenerate culture it was, and you know thank Hitler that we uh, that we rid the Europe of this of this uh, pestilence and what have you. Um, so this is an idea that has great currency in the post-war, uh, particularly Czech Jewish uh, uh, mind, um, and it's come out in the last probably five or six years that it's. It's not really true. It's a misunderstanding. Um, there were a lot of different projects that, that, that were, were going. But in terms of this particular um, museum, what had actually happened was that the, the Nazis let the Jews run the Jewish museum during the war. The, Jew, the Jews realised what was going on and they convinced the Nazis to ship all of the, all of the Judaica to Prague where they would catalogue it and they did it so that they would have what they saw as, as a testament to Jewish life after and they assumed they'd be wiped out after they were wiped out right and so this idea of the Museum of the Extinct Race um, kind of upsets or annoys me for a better term because it gives the Nazis credit for something that was actually quite a chutzpah um, to use the vernacular <laughs> um, Jewish uh, uh, Jewish project but in terms of my grandfather's involvement Um, It was clear that he couldn't have been taken from Theresienstadt... ...to the Prague Museum to sort through books or whatever... ...but what I did find out... ...as his name started appearing in records to do with a secret project... ...Nazi records, and the records are in the book... um, ...they had a group of, at any time, basically 30 Jewish scholars... ...who they took out of Theresienstadt to a little house about 300 metres down the road... ...and they sorted through Jewish books that had been stolen from communities around the Reich, right... And, um, he, and they were called the Talmud Commando. He was one of them. Um, there were probably about seven or eight of them who survived. None of them ever spoke about it. None of them gave testimony. None of them spoke to each other ever again, right? And that for me was like, uh, look, I, you know, that was like just holding, like, some shiny light in front of me going, you know, Braham, you've got to run into the light, run into the light. So, um, like, that, I, I was I obsessively chased that story um, and learned about... And this is the other thing. In terms of the responsibility of telling Holocaust stories at this stage, there are a lot of untold stories, right? So, another thing was, like, there was the, the, the Czech family camp in Auschwitz that pretty much nobody knows about, right? And the idea was that that was going to be plan B for the Nazis if after they'd shown the Red Cross around Theresienstadt, um, they Red Cross had said, well, this is all well and good, but we hear about these death camps, take us to one of those. They had this little small nook in Auschwitz where they were shipping every six months new um, new uh, uh, Jews from Theresienstadt who were in kind of good condition. They didn't shave their heads. They didn't wear striped pyjamas. I mean, it was still uh, like a... a, a, a cesspool of a place right? and people were dying of disease and what have you but it wasn't like they weren't being gassed and killed and shot and what have you right Um, and so my grandfather was in that and so I I saw that as an area of story to tell that wasn't known so the the point being that I think there are lots of stories still to tell and I'd actually said to my editor um, reasonably early on if I'm just writing another holocaust book tell me to get stuffed do you know what I mean like because I would much prefer, if I am doing that, that someone goes and reads Primo Levi or goes and reads Elie Wiesel or whatever. Um, unless I have something new to say that, uh, that adds to the conversation, there's no business writing a book. But that said, there is, and there are still books to be written, but the, uh, as I kind of said before, they come with a huge kind of ethical responsibility to like fidelity and, and, and historical record.
1: Chloe, you too deal with a tremendous tragedy and one that is in our near historical memory as a nation. A lot of people died, and you describe a number of those deaths. You describe husbands having to leave their wives as they burst into flames. You describe brothers dying uh, in a house that they've gone to while the parents who own the house have driven away. You describe all kinds of terrible ends for locals who were not necessarily um, living there because they were rich and having a residence secondaire, but rather it was a bit struggle town in those around churchill and and the townships that were burnt out in that blaze so you spend you linger on this, but you also balance that against Brendan himself and his own. Um, uh, humanity and I wonder whether uh, it was difficult during the writing of the book to balance all of those narratives of loss with this one frail and damaged man who was accused of causing their deaths.
0: Uh, I, it was it was incredibly difficult and I mean it's something that um, this was the biggest struggle and um, the man's story that you described, uh, I, I had permission to use his um, the, the documents he'd given to police about um, that tale. And then I've tried to be really quite minimal about um, uh, the others who um, were killed by this fire. Um, but I wanted it to be clear, the, gr- the gravity of a deliberately lit fire, Um and, and you're right, this, you know, it wasn't sort of a bit struggle town. This is one of the uh, uh, most disadvantaged areas in Victoria. And um, in, a, in a terrible irony, um, a lot of people died in areas where... Um, ..that were sort of in the hills, where there were collapsed communities where the bush had grown back, and therefore that's where, you know, the fire raged through areas where, you know, actually um, there was a lot of poverty... And um, yes, you know there there, I, there was always a balance of. I, I didn't want to make any. I don't want to make any apologies for this man, but I do think that um, you know you have a chance to I, to look more closely at this story and um, perhaps understand this phenomena um, better than just the the headlines would. Um, let us do by um, seeing it from, from his family and his lawyer's point of view, seeing him from their point of view as well, as, as the police's point of view.
1: Do you think Brendan ever, <clears throat> I mean, I don't see it in the text myself, but you might know more, ever really understood the weight of what had happened? Or was that something that was just outside his event, you know, his horizon of understanding?
0: Um, I think that um, Brendan, you know, is, is described as being sort of um, quite blunted emotionally and not not getting terribly happy and not getting terribly sad. I think that um, he perhaps didn't experience... Um, you know, I learned a lot about um, neurodiversity... And I don't think he experienced empathy in the way that, um, you know, neurotypical people do. And um, so, no, I don't think he, he, he did.
1: Mm. Well, that seems like a tragedy too, doesn't it? Because if your justice system is built on the fact that you're punishing people who understand what they've done and he doesn't understand what he's done, then, then justice hasn't really been served in that instance.
0: Look, I think it's really complicated that um, there are a lot of checks and balances for uh, intellectually disabled um, people in the law, and yet when uh, 11 people die and hundreds of houses are lost and, and you're sort of prosecuting a case of, of, of this severity, um, you know, unfortunately... Um, our system sort of breaks down and, and you know, it, it had to be... I, I can't see how else it would have been dealt with. Mm. But it does expose, you know, the ways this doesn't always work.
1: Much as Chloe does something <coughs> miraculous in her recuperation of the stories of those who lost their lives or their homes or members of their family in the arsonist, I think what Jock does in his novel is recuperate stories of those who otherwise are very silent in the historical record. And I'm referring to the Lascars on the ship and to the Indigenous Australians who meet and help even when it seems like they really don't deserve it at certain points. Um, these straggling um, companies, small company from the ship trying to walk all the way from the deep south of the mainland to Sydney. Can you tell us about how one goes about bringing the voiceless back into the picture?
3: Well, I thought, um, if I think back to my own education, the way that we were taught Australian history was very much um, a kind of big man approach that... Um, you learned lists of explorers and then you learned on a map using coloured lines where they went. (laughs) Me too. And I I remember having a sneaking (laughs) suspicion some reprobate in my class must have said, William Dampier was a pirate, you know? And I'm thinking, no, he's not. He's Dampier. He went from here to here. (laughs) And um, because so much of colonial history is told that way, you lose all the nuance and you lose the the people and and the characterisations. And uh, as I alluded to before, here I had the problem that I was dealing with a story of 55 men. And um, to break that down, of the 55 on the Sydney Cove, perhaps, I forget the numbers, 10, 12, 14 were Scotsmen, and the rest were Lascars. And Lascars were indentured Asian labourers who were the human engine of British trade at the time. and, And remarkably overlooked in the historical record. It's very hard to find much about Lascars, let alone Lascars in Australia. And Um, They were Malays, they were Chinese, they were Indian, they were Javanese, um, they came from a whole range of religions. These were family dynasties. People um, would pass on their occupations as lascars to their sons. they developed a subculture all of their own that, that transcended their religions. So they had superstitions, they had rituals that they would enact on board a ship. And and I thought, it's such a fascinating culture. And not to tell this story, at least partially through those eyes, would be a real waste. Um, in terms of, of indigenous people, it's a much more complex picture, because um, I, I made a rule for myself early on that I was not going to attempt to tell any of this story through indigenous eyes. It's just plain not appropriate, um, but that I needed to, A, it was impossible to tell the story without considering that dimension, um, B, that I would have to research everything I could find and C, that I was going to have to consult. And um, so the Indigenous parts of the story are strictly told through the eyes of those seeing these people. Um, And we're talking about two separate nations, um, six separate tribes in New South Wales alone, a whole lot of different language groups, Um, So the complexity of the tale immediately starts to compound itself. And then the other voice that I thought would have been left out here is any female voice in Sydney.
1: So Charlotte is such a breath of fresh air. She's got to be there. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And um, my reading of Sydney history, and there's probably people in this room who know much better than I do, but my reading of it was that you had two female perspectives to work with. One is what I call the kind of convict-prostitute perspective, And the other is um, the great woman perspective, like Elizabeth MacArthur. And that in between, there's this enormous gulf where we're not talking about the stories of ordinary female lives. So um, Charlotte, for me, was a way to talk about a sort of female middle class, somebody who was under some social expectations, um, somebody who was being very firmly told, if you wander beyond the cleared area of this settlement, you're in grave danger. And so immediately there's an illicit thrill in going and doing exactly that. Um, so between Charlotte and um, the Aboriginal groups and the Lascars, and in particular Srinivas, the Lascar boy, um, I had the opportunity to open this story up to some really different perspectives. And, and to give you an idea of how badly these people are written out of the history, um, in the Clark diary, um, Srinivas is a name I've made up, Uh, is described as a Lascar boy who was Clark's manservant. That's all we've got. We don't know how old he was, we don't know his nationality, uh, we don't know his name. um, And and I thought, here's somebody who has definitely got a story to tell. And that's why the whole device came about of Srinivas understanding English perfectly well um, and understanding exactly what was being said around him, but choosing to um, have some power by not letting on that he knew what was being said. Um, And I think that's probably a fairly common reaction to oppression is that um, if the only power you have in a situation is your own secret knowledge, then you retain it very, very closely. Um, And so I thought that would be a reasonable thing for Srinivas to do.
1: And it also uh, is a magnificent plot device at the same time, <laughs> so I celebrate you for that. <laughs> now, it's time for you all to ask questions, but Jock has asked me to do something, and I think it's great because I want you all to hear it. And would you be willing, Bram, to read the first, the opening paragraph of The Book of Dirt?
3: Sure. I'm going to put Bram in a really ugly position here and, and say that I think this is one of the best debut paragraphs in Australian literature. It oh, is, Jock. Okay. <laughs> so no pressure, next beer's no. on me. Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually told you it only had, you had to say it was only pretty good, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the region of T, not far from the city of U, there once stood a village that had been in Poland, then Hungary, then Subcarpathian Ruthenia, then Czechoslovakia, then Slovakia, then Hungary again. then then the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, then the Ukraine, and now cannot be found on any map. This village, satellite to a satellite, changed hands like a crumbling heirloom, each time losing a part of its essence until one day it ceased to exist. Even its name is forgotten, for nobody is left to lament it. In its place now there might be a field or forest, although, although no animal would dare roam there. Or perhaps God, in his infinite wisdom, erased that tract of land, so the world might be smaller and less full of sorrow. Thanks. And now I will read the next 290 pages.
1: (laughs) Bar the doors, please. (laughs) So, please, questions from the audience. There is a microphone um, circulating, so put up your hand, and we're recording, so apparently keep it close to your mouth. a gentleman just, oh, we've already got one, right? And then there's a gentleman
0: in the back. Uh, Bram, I've read your book, and the big disappointment for me in the story is not, not, yes. not your book, yeah. but the Red Cross. Yes. And I wonder whether you could explain their part in the yeah. surveilling of the, of the con- concentration camps and also the way they kept the archives locked
2: yeah so two things uh, and it's it, it's been uh, you know it's considered one of the great uh, wartime failures of the Red Cross uh, they did have the opportunity to uh, they, they were in constant correspondence with uh, with uh, Eichmann and and, and 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 a few of the top Nazis and there was and they organized a they they asked to be shown a um, a concentration camp and the, they didn't they didn't ask anything more than we just want to be shown a concentration camp and so the Nazis who had anticipated that um, and had kept Theresienstadt as essentially a functioning town with Jewish governance, still an absolute crap hole. But it was like, it, you know, it was, it was it, as, as a survivor said to me, you know, we didn't know what a paradise this was until we went to the hell of Auschwitz, right? But it was it was still terrible. Anyway, what they did in the lead up to, they were given plenty of advance notice by the Red Cross when they were coming. So what they did was they made a path that they would, Take the Nazis along. Um, they cleaned it all up. They they um, rehearsed performances. They held whole streetscapes. They had it so that you know the kids would run up to the commandant and say, you know, her whatever his name was. Uh, uh, oh, no, and he would give go to give them chocolates. Like, oh no, not chocolates again. I'm so full, right? <laughs> and the Red Cross at no point through this entire theatrical display for want of a better term, um, they never asked to see outside the path they were taken. Um, they, were, they, were, they happily kind of just went or They enjoyed. They put on, a, they put on an opera um, on one of the nights. They had a jazz club set up where they had people playing. And, they, and the Red Cross came out of it and just said, yeah, um, that's, uh, this place is not so bad. Yeah, I get that you've, you've put your Jews in a, an internment camp, but you're treating them pretty well, so that's fine. We don't need to see any more. Despite the fact there were rumours of death camps and what have you, um, after the war, all of the Nazi records that had been salvaged because the Nazis burnt most of their records, all the records that had been salvaged were kept in a place called Bud Urelsen, a small town in Germany, in underground vaults, um, like huge, like airport hangar type size things, um, and you could not access them, like for until I can offhand I can't remember the year, but like very recently. 2006, right? Um, when basically the the world ganged up on the Red Cross. They, that's essentially what they had to do, and say, open these, uh, open these these vaults, because people were trying to find out what happened to their family. People were actually trying to find out what happened to themselves, because like going through these years of trauma, they didn't they didn't they didn't kind of remember all the details, and they wanted to piece together their own trajectory. They wanted to know what happened to their mothers, their fathers, their their kids, whatever, all who died, right? Um, and the Red Cross just wouldn't give them access. Uh, in the end, they were essentially forced to. And what they uh, and I found about, out about it from a 60 Minutes program where two survivors went to Badaros and looked at their files. And they, the detail of these files was incredible. Like it had, you know, how many ticks they found on their body during during uh, washing. The, you know, um, what what the various where they what their work details were. What they like really so for some people very, for my grandparents, like there was bubkas, which is nothing in Yiddish. Um, uh, but like for a lot of survivors, there was seriously detailed. Uh, records. So yeah, so the, like Red Cross, a um, I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, I'm not going to say complicity to some degree, and then recalcitrance uh, was 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 actually really a great failing on 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 the part of an organisation that uh, you know is supposed to be the very opposite of that.
1: So, gentleman at the back here who had his hand up, uh, Chloe, this is a question for you in regard to. In society, when we other people, you know, the the homeless or the Muslims, we tend to make... They're one-dimensional, they're very easy. You took a central character and gave them dimension and and nuance. Um, Why did you choose to do that? Because this is an arsonist and uh, so many people died and it would have been easy to just leave them as other and uh, we could live with that, (laughs) if that was palatable.
0: Um, Well, I... I became interested in answering the question of why Why did this happen? Why would somebody deliberately set a fire? And I, and I want to note that of the 173 people who died that day, 161 died in fires that are, are caused by electrical failings. So um, it's only 12 people who died in deliberately lit fires. But uh, I guess if you ask the question, you know, uh, why would somebody set a firestorm um, you you can 't you have to sort of answer it i think in a um, with some dimension with some dimensionality so um, very early on, the Victoria Police arson squad agreed to cooperate with me and um, i I found that i was you know i 'm so grateful to them for for opening up, but I was writing a police procedural, which was the sort of what I, exactly what I didn't want to do, you know, especially after writing a book on police corruption. And uh, yeah, oops. Um, and I knew that there was a big hole. And I once I had the permission of Brendan and his family to speak to Legal Aid. I um, I was you know committed to. Um, they were very cautious, of course, about opening up because the headlines about him... Had, you know, he'd been painted as a monster. And the fire was monstrous. Um, but I, um, I had to honour, you know, um, their point of view. Quick follow-up.
1: You. You, you never mention this in the text, but did you come to any final decision regarding his actual culpability?
0: Mm. Did
1: he, do you think he did it?
0: Yes, I do. I mean, he's he's in he's in jail. He's been found guilty by a jury. Um, you know, I I certainly don't want to suggest that I um, you know no no, no
1: different. But ambiguity <laughs> abounds throughout the text uh, as as it properly well, should.
0: Well, uh, ambiguity, pers- you know, it's it's I guess it's framed within the point of view though of his legal team, who um, you know some of them, uh, you know, who I met. Um, Certainly the the, off, the the lawyers who'd worked with him right at the beginning of the case felt that um, there was a chance that he could have, like many intellectually disabled people, given a false confession. But I think, you know, as it, as it narrowed down and, you know, the, it took nearly three years to... It did. It took three years before it actually went before the court because of questions about his fitness to be tried. I've got a feeling that by the end his defence barristers um, were were less certain of his innocence. Mm.
1: Thank you. I think we've got time for one or two more. Does anyone else have a question? (laughs) There's a gentleman right at the front. (laughs) Just a sec. (laughs) <laughs> all right i very much now. admire your writing and before i go into my question i'll tell you a little anecdote i used to be a school principal and i gave your first book uh to, to crime to a female teacher who was on my staff who was venturing down that particular path that occurs in that novel um so i do thank you for that um <laughs> i admire I'm you sure very much that. um <laughs> in the same vein as helen garner um, my question is, it, would it only be female authors who could have the empathy that both you and Ghana have demonstrated when you've written similar texts?
0: Oh, look, that's lovely of you to say. And um, I, uh, on the one hand... I'm really flattered of being compared to Helen, which happens a lot, and I'm a huge, <laughs> ad, I'm a huge, I'm a huge admirer of her. Hers, I really uh, think that a lot of Australian non-fiction writers owe her a real um, debt. But I do sometimes think, you know, is there any? It's like, th- it's like there are no other um, female non-fiction writers in, you know, and there's a strange thing where. Um, you know, everybody, you know, a generation below Helen, who writes non-fiction, are, are all, um, you know, the, the comparison is very, is very strong, which I guess is actually a mark of how, how good she is, um, and, um, how uh, potent her books are, um, I don't know. I, I I think there is sort of a r- kind of radical um, compassion, you know, perhaps in in trying to sort of see the humanity in in an arsonist. And um, uh, but I I, I don't want to be essentialist about that. And um, but uh, I think that's um, and it's you know I, I think also you you kind of. Af- it's a process of redrafting. you get to actually think more deeply about something and maybe find those layers which, on first blush, you know I'm probably as quick to judge um, you know the the whoever's owns the chemical factory in in Melbourne that's burning out of control you know um I don't have enormous compassion for him right now. I don't have enormous compassion for George Pell, you know? But maybe if I dug down, I'd find some. Anyway, thank you.
1: I think what we might be saying is that the thing about uh, authors, uh, uh, these non-fiction authors who happen to be female, is it's a certain degree of steeliness and toughness uh, as, as much as, as empathy, which, which gives their work such extraordinary um, uh, depth and range. But, yes, we shouldn't be essentialist about it. (laughs) Jock, you mention Grace Karskins in uh, hugely admiring terms as one of your um, research texts. I mean, here's another uh, writer of nonfiction of Helen's generation or slightly younger. Um, uh, I mean, did she shape profoundly your perspective on the early years of the New South Wales colony?
3: Um, I I think I, I had read... The Fatal Shore in my 20s, like heaps and heaps of people did. And um, I loved it, and I loved the richness of it, and the detail, and the sort of snide humour. But looking back at it now, I can see how it was written in a very, very authoritative way. Um, It was laid down as gospel. And what Grace has done with a colonial history that's so different is, again, we're coming back to empathy. Um, she would, in any given chapter, she would lay out all of the evidence from the archive and um, explain the appearance or the surface of a thing, but then come in under it and say, and here is how this person lived their life. And and that takes um, not only intellectual discipline, but it takes enormous human imagination, I think, and empathy to find a human life inside the evidence, where perhaps what Hughes did was amass gigantic amounts of evidence and make theories out of them. And um, accordingly, you see a vision of Sydney that suddenly, you know, it, it's like that foundational question when you write history, um, are these people like us just wearing funny clothes or are <laughs> they in fact entirely different people? And, and um, Hughes will give you no answer to that question. Grace Caskins gives you a very firm answer that these are people like us. Um, and that, I just think that's so invaluable.
1: Mm. Thank you for that. I think we'll have to leave it there, but we could talk for hours more. I'm um, so grateful to you three for sitting down today and thank you all for being with us. That was a all real right. treat. And, and thanks, Geordie. Geordie. Yeah, a round yeah. of applause
0: for Geordie. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.